0: It's the Empowerment Perspective Podcast, hosted by Demiso Josie and Mr. Kareem Spence. Stay empowered. All right, welcome to yet another episode of the Empowerment Perspective Podcast. I go by the name of Dr. Demiso A. Josie alongside. Spence is here. And. Jamie. Is it safe to say, Jamie, we can call you a little Bits? It, it's safe. It's safe. Yeah, you're okay with that? <laughs>
1: I'm okay with
0: that. All right. Kareem, how you doing, sir?
2: I'm doing well, man. I'm trying to maintain, man. Need a haircut, <laughs> It's growing out of control, you know, you, uh, still you talking to myself. It's roughing, it's roughing <laughs> streets out here. But I just say, it's rough in my part of the neighborhood down here in my dining room. It's rough out here.
0: I got it. You seem to be in a little bit better space than you as a last time podcast. You were going over a little deep in there. It looked like the quarantine was kind of getting to you a little bit. You all right now? I'm, I'm getting better.
2: I asked uh, Pinot Grigio last night, so I'm getting better, slowly but <laughs> surely, you know, finding ways to medicate
0: myself to, to be able to survive this thing. This understand. Jamie, how are you guys holding up on your end? Um, I
1: are better today. I think everyone's kind of getting used to this.
0: Right. The new normal, right? I guess. Yeah. Um So in the previous podcast, we had Jen Kerr. She talked about her Mm. battle with cancer, Um, but that conversation kind of morphed into uh, the difference between fear and how do you cope with fear and also uh, mindset, mindfulness specifically. Uh, Kareem, your thoughts on that particular podcast?
2: I mean, just dealing with it unknown. Like tomorrow, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And being afraid to face tomorrow will inhibit you from being able to become who you're supposed to become. Like we talk about all the time, being able to go, you know, and have that that feeling of pain. A lot of people want to numb it, but a lot of times it it signifies that you're actually growing. And mm-hmm. on the other side of it, and I think um it was um, I can't think of all other motivational speaker, um, E.T. Eric Thomas, he mm-hmm. said the other side of pain is success. So mm-hmm. sometimes you just have to go through it in order to be able to understand what it takes to get there
0: yeah i look at it as a, like a storm right so there's three types mm-hmm. of people to handle storms when you're driving and, and my mother used to do this right so you see a storm in the distance some mm-hmm. people pull over underneath the bridge and kind of wait for the storm to pass some mm-hmm. people turn around and try to go the other direction um mm-hmm. but we, what we advocate here is the other third type of person is to go straight through that that storm right you can't mm-hmm. run from your pain you got to run towards it because you can't mm-hmm what you don't reveal, all those things that, you know, we hear, um, you know, att- attacking your fears head on is, is a huge thing. And at the mm-hmm. end of it, you're going to learn a lot about yourself as an mm-hmm. individual. Um, it's amazing what you can withstand if you just put your mind in the right place. Um, and then the person that you become on the back end of it um, is really what the empowerment perspective is all about, looking at mm-hmm. your, your issues from a different perspective and using it as a source of strength and motivation and not necessarily something to be afraid of. Uh, Jamie, what was your thoughts on that podcast?
1: Um, I think, you know, again, it made me think of, I know when my mom was younger, she would say no pain, no gain. So you had to have some sort of pain in order to, to move forward with whatever you were going through in your life. And it, it means so much. It meant a lot as a child, and it means even more as an adult. You, you have to have some sort of pain in order to reach that spot you want to in your life.
0: Got you, got you, got you. So that was definitely a powerful episode. So shout out to Jean Kirsch for sharing her story and stepping outside of her comfort zone um, about her battle with cancer. You know, we wish her well and everything. And um, obviously that's a topic that's near and dear to my heart and it has touched my family. um, So I definitely know the pain and struggles that she's going through, but she's still pushing through. So um, we're always going to be here to support her all the way through her journey. Uh, one of the big things that we push here at the empower Perspective Group is stepping outside of your comfort zone and also networking. Um, networking mm-hmm. is a huge thing that you need to do on any organizational level or even you as you know, individual person, depending on what you want to do. Um, and LinkedIn has been a big uh, tool that we have been using. Uh, we had uh, Beth Deacon on a couple mm-hmm. episodes ago who uh, worked in a prison population um, as a math teacher. Um, She's coming out with her book, Don't Forget Seven Doors In, about that particular uh, topic. Um, Then I started looking at my own individual um, life's work and and some of the educational things that we got going on here at the Empowerment Perspective Group. Um, Then I ran into this gentleman also and kind of, he posted something on his TED Talks and I I listened to it and it was kind of right in the same wheelhouse um, as, Mm -hmm. you know, the things that we talk about. here on Empowerment Perspective Group. Um, he's a, a principal, was a former um, gym teacher. I think he had one aspect, uh, aspirations to become into sports management. We're gonna get into all of that. So we awesome. so, like to welcome Mr. Hildebrand
3: Pilser, right? Pilser, Pilser. welcome to the show, sir. How are you? I'm well, thank you very much for having me and thank you for inviting me. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and what part of the
0: country are you in?
3: So I live outside, I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I currently live with my wife and daughter right outside of Philadelphia, about 45 minutes outside of the city.
0: Okay, okay, so welcome to the show. And we're just gonna kind of just dive right into it. Um, I wanna go from, because I was listening to your TED talk and and I was interested in your journey to the point where you are right now. Um, But I wanna talk about why you decided to get into education in the first place um, and then why all of a sudden was that switch that from, you know, the PE teacher to administration?
3: Right. So that's a, that's a, a, a great question. So I come from a background of, of educators. My mom is a retired principal and my dad is a retired uh, guidance counselor. Uh, mm-hmm. So I've been around the field of education all my life. But coming out of high school, I really wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. You know, I had maybe three, four five different things that I wanted to do from from being a doctor to physical therapy, and all kinds of things. And, and actually, when I went to college, I went to Hampton University my freshman year. I had really no clue what I wanted to do. And so um, sports management and sports was always a part of my life because my dad also uh, during his high school and college careers was a basketball player and he also coached professionally overseas. And so I always knew that sports would be somewhere in there. And so I decided to consider sports management. So I pursued the career of my college career in physical education. And uh, when I came out, I always was on the track that I would just parlay that into a way to pay for graduate school teaching. And it wasn't until I got my first job at a juvenile correctional facility here near Philadelphia. It was called uh, Ben Salem Youth Development Center, uh, is where I decided to become a principal. It's where I decided to to, to uh, transition from sports management to education because of what I was seeing in classrooms.
0: Mm. So we're kind of big on on the why here and, and discovering your why, why you do certain things. Um, you you touched on it a little bit, like what were some of the things that you were seeing in, in the classroom that kind of uh, Propelled you to go into in that direction to, to make a difference
3: absolutely so as a physical education teacher uh my principal who's, who's since passed his name was wally j henson uh, he also was a physical education guy and, a, and a, a football coach but he was the principal so i always saw wow you could transition from physical education to to principal he was the first person that i really knew in that space Uh, But I really enjoyed physical education. I enjoy the athletics. I enjoyed the health education aspects. I just enjoyed that camaraderie with the students that I that I developed. But it was on days that um, uh, the principal and it was not a lot of days, but it was impactful days when he was away from the building. The assistant principal, who was a good gentleman, uh, Brian Horsley. Who also passed away so these are two mentors that are no longer around but uh their impact on my life is still there um would ask me uh there was no science behind it he would just ask me to assist him because of the setting we were in so mm-hmm. we were in a correctional setting so it was really about having eyes on all parts of the setting right and the place was a physical education setting an academic setting and a, a, a vocational setting and then an outside setting, that type of thing. And so it was really about having more eyes on the place. So he would give me assignments to check on classrooms, move around, you know, uh, pop in on situations, keep an eye on certain students that could, you know, on their own turn the house upside down type of thing. And so those are the things I did, but I did it with a physical education lens, right? So as I'm going in classrooms, I'm seeing the same kids who could articulate, speak to me about anything, um, uh, weren't ashamed or were confident, all of those kind of things in the physical education setting. Athletic, could score touchdowns, could play sports, you name it. They were, could lift weights, you name it. They were good at it and, and, and would brag about it, right? But in the classroom, none of that. It was just like a meek manner, um, quiet. Uh, fearful almost um, Not doing well Couldn't write They did a lot of writing graffiti You know, you talk about writing a passage And then the the writing is in graffiti You know, <laughs> not being able to do cursive All of those kind of things kind of bubbled up And kind of played It, it, it impacted me it, it it I felt bad about it I, You know, it was something I had never really seen Because I come from a family of educators mm. You know, so Studying doing your work, striving for achievement, all those kind of things were things that I grew up with. And, and to see such despair was like, this can't be. And, and so, so to see those two aspects is really what got me to really think about is sports management really what I want to do. Mm-hmm. But Dr. Josie, let me just add this point because I didn't share this in the TED talk, but this is the real profoundness of this experience you know, the, the, the physical, the the principal was a physical educator himself who went on to become a principal, but during lunchtime, you could go out to, to have lunch. Most teachers would go out to have lunch. And sometimes I would stay in with the principal and we hmm. would just talk and that kind of thing. But one day he said, he kept asking me, what do you want to do? I said, you know, athletic director, basketball coach, that's what I'm going to be. And uh, he said, one day, do you want to run a school or run a gym? Mm. And that, it, it, when he said it, I thought he was really being mean to me. Do you want to run a school or run a gym? Because I really enjoyed being a physical educator, right? You basically, that's where you are in that gymnasium space. And um, that question got me to really reflect on my future. And that was really something that added to me going from sports management to education administration, because it sounded so much better to run a school mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: gotcha. gym. Got you. Now, Kareem, we talk about, um, we go around ac- across the country and we talk about how to teach today's hip hop generation. Um, one thing that uh, Hilda uh spoke about was seeing uh, his frame of reference as a, as a gym teacher and seeing education mm-hmm. in that frame of reference. We kind of come in from seeing it from a frame of reference of, you know, the, the hip-hop culture and trying to uh, adapt, you know, the certain cultural elements to the classroom mm-hmm. and how these kids learn. Do you think there's more educators should be looking at, uh, we talk about being a student of our students, right? So do more mm-hmm. educators should look at that and, and try to adjust the, the, the frame of reference for their kids? Do you think there's room in education for that?
2: I mean, there's always room for it. And I think that what Hildebrand was able to do um, based on what he was comfortable with at that time in his career was to be able to engage them in talking about sports. So now what happens is that you build a relationship with them and you build a, a sense of trust. So now when he does need to correct them, it's easier for him to correct them because he has a relationship. He found that one thing that they both can relate to. So rather it was, you know, playing basketball, football, lifting weights, track, whatever it was in that athletic mind. He was able to connect with that student and mm-hmm. it made the conversations a lot easier. So okay. to go back on, you know, to what his mentor was asking him about being able to run a gym or being able to run a building. In essence, if you're able to connect to every student. In that building, you, you're not running the gym. you're you're running a campus Mm. and now what happens is that you have connections with each and every student based on one simple aspect so a lot of teachers have different ways of being able to connect like if you're a fisherman you don't go you know because i'm not a fisherman but i know for sure that i'm not going to go use certain type of bait to be able to catch certain type of fish so the fish that he was able to catch was that athletic fish Mm. and when you look at the majority of students that have discipline problems in school most of them, majority of us say, are coming from the athletic aspect.
0: So mm-hmm. you can actually reduce the amount of discipline that you have just by using certain bait. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talk about that all the time. I mean, we do certain things. We have a, our positions are a little bit different because you're a guidance mm-hmm. counselor, I'm an administrator, so we're a little bit more fluid. So we could do certain things like Real Talk Fridays, mm-hmm. I mean, we're, you know, it's a sports group, um, even and when we shared this before, um, me going around giving fist bumps to every single student every day, and they mm-hmm. need to talk to me. It's a handshake. All those things is about building relationships with with your mm-hmm. students, I and mean, it has spilled over to the community and, and things of that nature. So um, as educators, and uh, we we need to again become students of our students, knows mm-hmm. which are interested in certain things and try to find pockets to connect with them Mm -hmm. i read harry potter not because i like harry potter but that's what my kids are reading so i need to be able to understand their language and understand how to connect with them and i just think more educators need to to take the time to do that is it time consuming Mm -hmm. a little bit but Mm -hmm. once you have them Now, the the other thing is that we we forget, because I I love sports
2: just as much as you guys. So when we talk about LeBron James, it actually has his own school. When you talk about Jalen Rose, it actually has his own school. So these are athletes that have went on and pushed away from their career and decided that they were going to create an environment where students can actually come in and feel comfortable. And they trust LeBron and they they trust Jalen. Why? Because they see themselves. Mm. You see them as being regular people that's willing to give a hand versus somebody that's looking down on them.
0: Right, right. Now, Hildebrand, you talked about your um, TED Talk, too, about the importance of relationship building. Uh, <laughs> can you expand on that a little bit, the importance? of it? I know we touched on it here, but um, from your perspective.
3: Yeah, yeah, and, and Kareem hit hit right on it. Uh, I was able to connect with my, my students through sports, and so when when I saw them in the classroom, at least in my early career, Um, they weren't ashamed that I saw them. You know, they knew that how I would continue to treat them and that type of thing. And so the relationship developed through the sports. But as I've grown in my career and and seen a lot of different things in my career and been a part of different schools in my career, you know, relationship, student-teacher relationship, more specifically, is the one thing, that is probably the number one strategy to have in a school right we we have procedures and systems um we can have professional developments and read books and all of those type of things but that care for listening Mm -hmm. to students um, um speaking with students wanting to help students wanting to knowing that they have challenges but you want to help them address them is something from within And if you can do that, um, you can help and reach as many students as possible. Now, you may not reach them right away. That's one Mm -hmm. thing I've learned over the years. You you know, uh, I share with teachers all the time when they struggle or or, or feel challenged. Just because you didn't connect with that kid on the first day or the first month, you know, it takes time, you know, but Mm -hmm. it takes that effort and that relationship building. But that is the one thing that I think that we need more of focus mm-hmm. on student-teacher relationships, authentic, and how to forge them. And, right. and uh, in schools, and I can go even in deeper when I think about schools, when we talk about schools uh, uh, where there may be majority African-American kids, uh, not, not a majority African-American staff, or you have increasing uh, bilingual and EL learner families and different cultures, right? So all, as all these things manifest in a school, is really helping folks develop those relationships because education is a people business. It's mm-hmm. really about people. Uh, the kids are the number one people. Their parents are the people. The teachers are the people. So it's really about treating people like people.
0: At the end of the day, yeah. yeah it's a lot of education. Like you said, the majority of it is relationship building. Yeah. Um, the other side of it to me is also customer service, which kind of hands with relationship yeah. building as well. Um, but it's also not just necessarily student- teacher relationship like there's also colleague relationships and there's yeah. you know, relationship with administrators relationship with your community like you just have to be a, if you're not a people person and you're not able right. to connect and, and connect with different types of people don't even go in education because right. mm-hmm. you're not going to be as effective as, as as you can be if you open up those doors and have those those types of uh, you know relationships now, then your classroom teacher and i know we talked about this before but um i, I don't want to talk about the relationships that you built with your students but how did you make connections with families as well
1: you have to um open the line of communication early on so you can't wait for something bad to happen in the classroom and call home and say hey here's all of these horrible things that are happening you need to reach out in the beginning and say hey this is how i'm running my classroom these are my expectations for this school year so you have to start off with a positive and then go into the negative if there is
0: (laughs) And I'm wondering, now you said that, I'm thinking about my electric bill, right? Mm-hmm. I don't from my electric company when the bill is due or when it's passed due, of course, I'm going to be angry with it. I would love for companies and organizations, to, especially the service industry, to call me and be like, I wonder how you're doing with Dr. Josie. Everything okay? You know, build those. That's a lesson that can be taken in any organizational manner. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, when it's time for me to have a difficult conversation with you and I'm back two, three months, I'll feel more comfortable having this conversation with you. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of those things are transferable to other industries um, as well. And yeah. now I do want to get into uh, the literacy piece. You talked about that and the importance of, of it for your uh, specific population. Uh, how big is, is does, does literacy, what role does literacy play in terms of these incarcerated youth that you've um, educated throughout your career?
3: So many of the incarcerated youth in my earlier setting at the juvenile correctional facility in Ben Salem, But also when I worked inside the Philadelphia prison system, um, literacy, not having literacy skills was the number one issue that I faced, uh, whether they were young, young, young juveniles or adults. And what I've seen across the, uh, the years, even in the traditional school setting, is really focusing on how we're teaching reading. Right. How are teachers equipped with teaching reading? How are we coaching teachers around reading? what uh reading resources and materials that we're using um in the incarcerated setting that was the number one hurdle Mm. Um, you 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 want to fast forward with subjects like social studies and science and math and all those kind of things but you always brought back to the fact that you have to go back to the basics with young people who were 16 17 and older not being able to know their letters not being able to know all of their sounds uh, not being able to write coherently, uh not being able to read words like the you know those type of things, and so that devastation was something that overwhelmed me at times and 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 it became the number one tool or the number one action that I always wanted to uh try my very best to address in any setting that I was in, correctional or traditional making certain that how we're teaching reading, how we developing um small groups, how are we using anecdotal notes, um, uh reading behavior notes, and uh what uh interventions are we using, how much time are we spending with reading, those type of things. Kindergartners knowing their letters. You know, uh when I was in school, I always remember just singing the ABCs. I don't necessarily remember the 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 structure that I may have been in, in kindergarten, first grade, you know, guided reading, those type of things. But I do remember singing A, B, C, D, E, F, G, that song, and that stand with me. And I don't always see that a lot nowadays. And so uh, kindergartners are going through school a whole year, not knowing 26 letters in about 180 days. And that just seems profound to me. And so always focusing on that is something that uh, I've kept, as a, a leadership tool that I wanted to focus on.
0: Yeah. Gotcha. Now, now, Jamie, as a teacher, I know you expressed that there's been some concern of these programs that keep cycling through um, edu- the educational arena, and um, you know, one time it might be Pinnell, it might be Wilson Reading. There's all these you know programs and stuff out there. Uh-huh. How frustrating is it for you? When you've been in education for a while um, as an English teacher. How frustrating is it for you on that end that every I would say, five to seven years, you got a new program that's coming in.
1: I don't even think it's every five to seven years at this point. I think it's every two to three to four years we have another program. So I don't even know what data they have to, to say that one program's not working before they go to the next. Hmm. And as a special education teacher, we have programs that overlap sometimes. So they want us to teach this program in conjunction with this program? Well, you have a child that already has learning disabilities, so we, we don't expect that from our regular ed students, but you're throwing two and three programs at one special ed student and you don't know what's going to stick. And it, it is frustrating.
0: I'm sure. Um, and me as an administrator, I kind of struggle a lot of times with these programs. I'm more of a, a, a prove me right type thing. Like, what mm-hmm. was the numbers, and you proving that these kids are are, are progressing. To me, mm-hmm. I really care less with program you use. If you use your own program, I don't care. Then, the damn with these kids to read. I get you know they have state mandates and you have know, these other things that are, are in play. Um, but just from a fundamental aspect, one of the uh, frustrating things for me is when I have teachers say, well, I can't do it my way because I have to do it X, Y, Z, even though you know that it's better for your kids to do it, you know, exactly. this particular way. Um, so, and I tell myself all the time, I said, I can't argue with number. If you prove to me that, you know, that your kids have been, you know, improving, I'll go to bat for you. All right, I get it. You didn't follow to the T the program, but you know your students. Um, I think mm-hmm. Uh, that's a big piece that I think is is kind of missing. I know you want to have u- uniformity in education. I get it. Um, I understand it. But these programs are created by people who just maybe got their doctorate, and sat around, and said, "Hey, let me. This is the best way to do it. I'm put it together, and then people are, are buying it. And you know, these districts and, and you know, educational institutions are buying it. Yeah. You know, not, not
3: only are they buying it, Dr. Josie. You know, the district under. Uh, procurement rules and those type of things. Once they have contracts with those particular companies, then the schools have like those options. Here's your options. So you're only buying these things to be in compliance with mm-hmm. with the procurement and business aspect, you know. But uh, as as uh, Jamie said, there are so many different competing
0: mm-hmm. uh,
3: programs and curriculums, and you're right, they do change too often. And so once you begin to train your staff on one, you know, it may change. Or if you get new staff, then, then you have to start over by training them, right? Mm-hmm. And so those kind of things going forward also causes some barriers.
2: Mm-hmm. Right? Let me just talk in for a second, Miso, because the other component that we, you know, always seem to leave out in the decision-making is our parents. So... Mm-hmm. When we continue to change the program, parents don't have a clue. So the kids come home and they say, "Well, this is how it's supposed to be done." Parents say, "No. When I went to school in the '80s, this is how we did it, and this is how I want you to do it." Now it causes discourse in the home, where it's the kids looking at the parents saying, "You know what? You're stupid." Parents looking at the kids like, "You know what? You're just as dumb." Now what happens is that now you got a full fledged argument going on in the house. And guess who they call in the morning? They call me. Hey, Mrs. Spence. Guess what happened last night?
0: It sounds like you had a personal experience. <laughs> oh, <or something>. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's funny, but uh, that goes back to the relationship building piece mm-hmm. again, too, right? So it, it's you, we talk about education and being a collective, uh, you know, unit—the parent and the student—we're all on the same team. But at the end of the day, are we really on the same team? Mm-hmm. Do, they, do they really know what the play is? They're not mm-hmm. the equivalent to, to sports, but do they really understand, uh, you know, what is happening within the within the school setting? And I know it's kind of tough because a lot of parents don't have time for it. A lot of parents can care less about it, um, but. At least the, a lot of the institutions I've been involved in, there has been very little um, opportunity for schools to or mm-hmm. at created for schools to go to have those conversations. I think part of the issue is, too, is that these schools are waiting for parents to come to them kind Mm -hmm. of build it and they'll show up type thing. And Kareem, you know, we've always been an advocate for going out to the community and and doing something small like putting up a table at the Mm -hmm. the local softball field. And you want to ask us questions, come ask us questions. Mm -hmm. Going to local churches, going to these local organizations and saying, hey, we are here. But so Mm -hmm. many schools are just waiting for them, the, the people to come. You know, to them, Um, Mm -hmm. it's it's frustrating uh, on my. You know, it's
2: sort of like it's sort of like we work for Comcast, right? Comcast is going to say we're going to show up at your house between hours of eight and four. You're like, wait a minute, I got a whole entire day. I got to juggle. I got to sit the house to eight to four for Comcast to show up. (laughs) That's who I think education is. I think secretly education is Comcast and the way they operate.
0: So raw. Maybe you're shaking your head. You don't agree with
2: that. Yeah, wait, wait, wait till our internet go off and Comcast say, just step by the phone. We're gonna call you. Don't call us, we're gonna call you.
0: That is too
2: funny. $132 a month for internet. That's what I pay. It's crazy.
0: <laughs> you get
2: salty. I'm salty about the internet bill.
0: I hear it. I hear you. Um I do want to get into this this theory of the, the school to prison mm-hmm. pipeline. Um, mm-hmm. there's people out there that don't believe that it exists. There's people that um, think it's a a leaky pipeline and uh, there's holes in the system all the way through. Um, Then there's ones that obviously believe in the the whole entire theory. Um, I just, Hildebrand, I want to get your take on, uh, and we kind of touched on it a little bit, but your take on the the school of prison pipeline theory. Is it a real thing?
3: Well, it's definitely a real thing. Kids are going to jail uh, every day uh kids are going to jail for minor things, major things. But it goes back to the relationships, in my experience, uh, relationships with kids. How you want to treat kids when they do something wrong in either your class or to you, mm. right? And one of the things Wally J. Henson, the principal back at the Ben Salem Youth Development Center, it was on any given day, kids always did something wrong, right? Mm two teachers or two adults, but he always had this thing of how to show us and model to the teachers, how to mend those relationships. And that always stayed with me. And so trying to help teachers not hate kids, be so angry with kids that when they do wrong, be willing to teach them the way you want them Mm -hmm. to behave or how you, um, uh, Establish expectations. Mm. So that's the challenge. Because I've had teachers, you know, uh, who want kids arrested. I've had mm. uh, I've had parents who wanted kids arrested. I've I've had you know teachers storm in and say you know what you're going to do about this kid type of thing. When my instinct is to develop a better student-teacher relationship and to show that teacher. Um, how to work with that kid going forward because the school is, belongs to the kids. Mm-hmm. Right? We just work there. And so that has been an area that I've struggled with at times, but also have been successful at times in trying to get help teachers understand that kids do wrong. Mm-hmm. But how do we help mend those relationships so that they then do better? Mm-hmm. And so the school to prison pipeline is real. Now, most of the times we talk about it from the perspective of of policies, right, suspension policies, expulsion policies, um, different student code of conduct levels and what should happen and that type of thing. But as as uh, Kareem mentioned on the outset of the talk, a lot of the behaviors or discipline problems is really because of lack of academics. So Mm -hmm. kids are acting out, cutting out, you know, doing things that they shouldn't be doing to avoid doing math or to avoid doing something. And if we can just focus on that data and see that this kid is reading two, three years below level, let me focus on that Mm -hmm. versus let me focus on what he did and I'm a suspending. I would rather do the former. Mm -hmm. Let's focus on what the child is struggling with and then let's fix that. And I guarantee that that child will do better.
0: Right. I mean, at the end of the day, behavior is a symptom right so Mm -hmm. kind of like you know you get a cold a head cold and you get the sniffles and stuff we go to the doctor and we treat that symptom but we don't treat the underlying cause of it right so the the cold comes back every you know so often so um the other piece too when i try to tell my staff it's kind of like the fire alarm goes off in your house right the the behavior is the fire alarm it's not telling Mm -hmm. you what type of fire it is it ain't telling you where it is and all those things that you need to really they just let you know hey there's a problem so these kids that are acting out this behavior is the alarm saying this, Mm -hmm. there is a problem. Your job as an educator and the person that's in care of this child is to figure out what that issue is underlying cause of it, be it academic, be it social, Mm -hmm. be it home stuff and try to figure out how to fix that because those behaviors are going to keep showing up. Then you send them and you don't change the environment. You bring them right back in the environment. I I tell my teachers all the time, I say this is like taking an alcoholic, send them to AA Mm -hmm. and we'll put them back in a bar and expect them not to drink again. Is it everything mm-hmm. that that that's happened, and it, it's mm-hmm. kind of frustrating. And green I mean, is probably in your wheelhouse a little bit more than in mine. But um, and just speak upon you know the behavior being a symptom and not necessarily you know we shouldn't necessarily be treating that symptom if we want.
2: Yeah, to. I, I, I want to get to that in a second, but be, before we can even um, you know talk about the prison, the school to prison pipeline, we have to go back to this this so called theory. Um, I remember in school and teachers telling me that I'm either going to be dead or in jail by 21. Mm. Now, I don't know um, if um, Hildebrand, you did research, but I cannot find the exact, I want to say, sciences or research person that came up with that quote. (laughs) But that has destroyed more lives, at least in my generation, than any hip hop song ever. Mm. So if you go to school, every time you make a mistake, a teacher, someone that is supposed to be looked at in high regard, is telling you or foretelling what your future is going to be—that you're going to be dead and in jail yeah, by the time that. you're 21. Mm-hmm. And this is for an entire generation that yeah. people had to like deal with that. And as we fast forward now, we have this school-to-prison pipeline. Again, they're 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 not going back to all those years of people being told that you're going to be dead in jail by the age of 21 or 25. <laughs> and we, we still cannot get past that. At least I can't get past that. Every time I see one my teachers from high school, I look at them like, yeah, you're going to see my birth certificate? Because like, I bet you,
0: man, I ain't dead unless you've seen ghosts. And so, yeah. I got money. so. <laughs> So, but so you, you, but you put that on top of the fact that they might have family members saying you ain't ish, I ain't ish, and you never be mm-hmm. getting all these negative messages out there, and obviously these young people will be like, Well, if that's the case, they start believing it, and then mm-hmm. you start seeing these
2: behaviors. So, so if, if we're looking at symptoms and we're, we're talking about behaviors, the behavior is a form of communication. So, even when you do get a kid in the classroom and he still he starts to tell jokes or he starts to be a distraction. He's operating from a sign of strength because he knows that if I'm weak, when I leave here, I'm going to be a clown. And they're going to clown me every single day in the community. So for him, OK, I'm not going to allow you to teach. You know why? Because I am not going to tell him what's going to happen to me when school ends. A lot of times, teachers and professionals, they forget that kids got to go back into the community. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't stop. Like school is just six hours. You still gotta go home. And if you live in a walking distance, you know, walking district,
0: like I did, listen, that's a long walk home where people are clowning you for not being able to read. So that brings it up. Part of my, my research dealt with the concept of code switching. And we talked mm-hmm. about this in our presentation. Like, you know, these kids gotta be a certain person in the, the classroom, in each classroom's different cultures and climates in each classroom. Mm-hmm. I gotta figure out how to be different in each of those. I'm in the overall school, walking in in the hallway. Now, Mm -hmm. outside in the community, I gotta be Mm -hmm. something else. And then, and we live in an area in New Jersey where, you know, technically it's the sticks, but we have relatives in the inner Mm -hmm. city. Now I gotta be somebody else when I go to the inner city. (laughs) So these mm-hmm. kids are they are so confused, and it's like, well, which one can I really be myself in? You know, what I'm mm-hmm. saying that all the time. So um, you got these young people whose brains aren't fully developed, and you know, they got a lot of stuff that you know that's within them um that are dealing with this concept of, mm-hmm. of code switching and they don't know how to navigate. Right. Can you
2: can you just imagine for a second, because this actually happened in a city a couple of years ago, where a third grader bought a gun to school? Mm-hmm. He's in third grade, and he's saying that. Again, we're talking about the behavior. Is that yeah. I can't deal with this, so now this is my only form of protection. Mm. I'm going to I'm gonna have to either show someone that I'm not playing with them, or That's I'm going to have to do something to someone to show everybody else that I'm not. This is a third grader with a handgun. Third mm.
3: grade, mm. third grade, yeah, third grade. That's crazy. So,
2: but you you would think that you know we would like pause and say, oh wait a minute, this. This is out of control. We have to start doing a little bit more investigating on what's going on in the climate of our school that a third grader said, I need to bring me a hammer. I can't imagine like a third grader and he was going to do something to somebody like the the weapon actually went off. and, And luckily it didn't go
0: through the wall, but he was in the bathroom and he pulled it out and the weapon went off. We should wow. be worried about these kids bringing Pokemon cars to school. Wow. in third grade. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> weapons, it's is crazy. Uh, now, Jamie, I know you watched the TED Talk. Um, I know you said you had some notes down there. So I'm putting you on a little bit because uh, you know, that's what I do. Um, and I know you're you're a uh, literacy teacher. I want to kind of turn it over to you. And if you had any questions for Hildebrand or anything. Uh, that you wanted to speak upon. In regards- uh, one other thing I forgot to mention,
2: um, I wrote it down. I take notes too, uh, little bits. I take notes. So here's the thing. I forgot. Also, forgot to mention that the other quote that came out prior to the um, school to prison pipeline that there were more um, African American males in prison than there were college. So on on top of that, which was all bad statistics that they came out with. But people took that, and they ran with it, so all this is really being downloaded in the young minds and the subconscious to make them believe that they can't succeed,
3: yeah, mm.
0: so how do we change that narrative? yeah
2: we got to tell them the truth, and the truth of it, and I actually watched a movie and I think his name was um I think his name was Morton. he was working um out of d c when he ran he did the uh, statistics, and when they looked at the numbers, they looked at eighteen to sixty five for the prison age, but mm. It's not to mean 65 year olds going to college. So you look at college age was pretty much is 18 to maybe 25, 26. Right. There were more African-American males that was in college than there was prison. But those statistics need to be like shared with and it needs to be positive messages that we're giving to our students. Every message should be positive affirmations because we got to build
0: them up.
3: Yeah. In my book, I talk about a little bit about how the media sensationalizes things. Mm-hmm. And that's an example. Uh, you know, years ago, when 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 we used to talk more about school violence, you know, mm-hmm. nowadays it's bullying, right? Mm-hmm. In the '90s, it was a lot of school violence, but you could have the same occurrences happen in, say, the summertime mm-hmm. in a neighborhood, and and it just be violence, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But when it was when school was in session, you know, the news is outside of the school. They want to know what student the school, what school the student went to, the kid that was involved. Then it was school violence. When
0: mm-hmm.
3: things are always happening in our communities, and 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 we're not necessarily addressing those mm-hmm. symptoms in our communities, mm-hmm. but that sensational uh, uh, messaging by the media is something that you're hitting on, something that mm-hmm. I spoke about in the book.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I went to Temple University for my uh, undergrad, and every time in the news it'll say near the campus of Temple University, and then I know exactly where it is, and it's nowhere near Temple. <laughs> but the funny thing is, then you look at uh, University City, where Penn is and Drexel is. You don't have the same dialogue, even no. though it's, you know you don't hear near the campus of Penn University of Pennsylvania. It's always one is it. thirty blocks away from where Temple mm-hmm. University is. So down Temple gets this negative connotation. Like I have students all the time. Like my mom's not sending me to Temple. It's a terrible neighborhood. I'm like Temple's probably one of the safest neighborhoods in the city. Of Philadelphia.
2: Uh, let me chime in, so uh-huh. When the lights are on, Temple's safe. You go about four or five blocks. It's not as safe down there in North Philly. Would you say the same thing about University City? Oh, not at all. But I'm not going on 7th and Diamond either. I know better than that. <laughs> you know the city.
3: You know the city. But yeah. That's true. You know, yeah. You, Temple does get that hit like that. Mm-hmm. And, and Drexel University mm-hmm. Penn, at the, uh, uh, you know, I mean, there's those same type of incidents in that West Philadelphia side, mm-hmm. versus the North Philadelphia side. You're exactly right about that. Is mm-hmm. that meeting how they report on it? Right,
0: right. So, Jamie, I know Kareem cut you off, um, as he always does. So gonna, I'm going to give you the floor a little bit and then we're going to uh, wrap up this, this uh, podcast.
1: So, so I, when I listened to your talk, you said um, something about students, your students in particular, they understood what their level of reading was. So if they were in a 10th grade and 11th grade, they understood that reading on a second grade and third grade level, what that meant for them in the big picture. So they automatically gave up. But as a teacher, I feel like a lot of times students will come into the classroom and give up before we even started. And that giving up is almost a means of them asking me for help to help them to get to that point. So what can educators do in the classroom when kids come in with that sort of attitude?
3: Believe in them. Jamie, you hit it on the head. They may not communicate the way you and I may communicate about a problem or how to ask for help, right? That's the simple way. I need help. They Mm -hmm. may not do that. They may do some, some behavior, right? And in your case, what you just explained, you know, they give up. But believe in them. If we're in front of kids, then we should believe in kids. If Mm -hmm. we're in front of kids to teach reading, math, or uh, counsel them, or whatever it is, that's what we should do. And so we should be able, that goes back to that uh, relationships, Mm -hmm. right? To know kids, to know your kids. Dr. Josie said something earlier that we used to do at the Benson, I still do. You know, shake hands, Mm -hmm. right? Always making that connection. If you know your kids, you know when something's wrong, You know Mm -hmm. when to pull them to the side. You know uh, uh, that they're going to need some help. They don't need to ask you because Mm -hmm. you know what they need. And so you hit it right on the head. Believe in them. That is what Mm -hmm. I would say to teachers.
0: Mm -hmm. That's such a powerful message. I mean, even as parents and and even if there's, you know, kids in your community, um, that's that's a big like Kareem touched on it a little bit, too. We need to flip the narrative. Um, mm-hmm. giving positive affirmations and 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 believing them. Um, yeah. the, a lot of these kids have the the ability to do great great things. They just need an avenue and someone to kind of show them uh, the direction to to go into. Um, mm-hmm. And as adults, I mean, that's our responsibility. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I look at it as the Sankofa bird. The Sankofa bird has the ability to reach back and grab a nut and carry it forward. And in essence, that's what we're trying to do here with the empowerment perspective of some of our our programs and stuff that you know we mm-hmm. do speak to youth and. Out and work with them as well. So, um any adult that's out there, if you're around kids and you really care about you know, mm-hmm. them, your neighborhood, and their future, it's time for us to start to show them the path. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is the opportunity for us to do that. Now that we're all kind of quarantined and a new normal is mm-hmm. coming out, maybe it's time to reach out to a young person and say, "Hey, are you okay? How's everything going?" They got anxieties right now too. They got fears. Uh, the future is uncertain mm-hmm. for them too. So, sit down with them. Have a conversation with them and, you know, reassure them, one, that everything's will be all right, but also help them start planning for tomorrow as well. Um, that, that's really an important piece um, as well. Uh, Hildebrand, you talked about your book. What's the name of your book and where can people find it?
3: The book is Unlocking Potential, uh, Unlocking Potential, Organizing a mm-hmm. School Inside a Prison. Uh, it can be found at Amazon.com, uh, BarnesandNoble.com uh, outskirtspress.com you can go on my website uh, and there are links there the book has been out uh, for about uh, nine years now and so it was a book that uh, the backdrop is the Philadelphia prison system and I talk about uh, a lot of stories and and leadership lessons that I learned in that in that setting but the, the heart of the book is about an educational model that we created Inside of that setting, to organize a school in an adult secured setting, where uh, not over nine thousand of the adults there, of the inmates there, were adults. But how do you organize classrooms on housing units, on blocks, and mm-hmm. spaces when th- within that organization, so that kids can have a high quality education? How do you assign teachers to classes? How do you train the teachers? How do you think about? uh how kids will be moving in that space so the book there's a chapter about the juvenile correctional focus education model that's in the book that's very profound and very helpful to uh juvenile settings detention centers and places around the country where they're trying to figure out how to implement a quality education
0: got you so now all three of us we we have different um I guess, aspects of our job that we do. So I wanna end this podcast by asking a simple question about teacher and administrator prep courses um, at university and colleges. If there's one thing from your given fields, all of us, uh, what would you think that these students need to learn the most, to be the most impactful as they learn to become either a school leader, a guidance counselor, or a teacher? Anybody jump in? I know it's a deep question, but <laughs> I want to say
2: probably in, instilling like core values um, so that when they arrive day one, kindergarten, they have an individual education plan that was actually created by that parent. Uh, and going back to what you guys are saying, when students are in the classroom, just imagine the profound impact you'll have on the kid if they walk in a room and you call them king. Like day one, you start calling students kings instead of students. You're referring to young ladies as queens. So now, what happens is that now you have a, a different respect level that's going to be established in the classroom. And if they are arriving with core values, and they're those core values are being um, built on the foundation that that's a, every day that's occurring. Now, what happens is that when when they leave us at the end of their 12-year school, wherever they decide to go, they're a lot stronger. They have those life skills. We don't have to worry about self-esteem if everybody's looked at as being a king. Everybody's looked at as being accountable and responsible for each other, building an actual community within the school.
0: Mm, Got you. Um, Jamie, from your perspective as a teacher, what could something, uh, maybe something that you wish you would have learned back then that you now know now as a teacher?
1: I, think, I don't think it's something that I learned back then. I think that um, teachers have to be willing to take risks with their students. And I think that when teachers are risk takers, you um, create students that are risk takers and that will do things in life that they may that are maybe out of their comfort zone. So I think that the higher you set the bar, they're more willing they are to, to strive to reach that. And that's not necessarily something that I learned in school. That's just something that I learned as my experience in the classroom.
0: Got you. Hildebrand, from the perspective of an administrator.
3: Yeah, it's really about having a vision and having belief, having a vision about where you want your school to go, what you want it to achieve, how you want it to treat people and and, uh, wrap around the success around your kids, that vision. But believing in everybody in your building, Mm -hmm. coaching people up, coaching teachers up, working with your support staff, Making certain that parents, we talked about earlier, we're having workshops to help parents know uh, what the curriculum is like, what are some tools they can use at home to kind of extend the learning, but really making everybody in your community believe that this is Mm -hmm. possible and having that vision to go forward.
0: Awesome, awesome, awesome. So, um, in traditional form of the Empowerment Perspective Group, we like to end our podcast on a, a little bit positive note, a little lighter side of things. So, I'm going to ask, we have a new segment on our show, um, you know, All Things Small <laughs> with Jamie Roberts. So, we talk about, or you talk about one thing that's small because you're small, you're like two feet tall. We people see you, they'll understand it. One thing that you do not like that's small.
1: I dislike small-minded
0: people. Hey, that's you out, Karina. That's deep. That's deep. That's deep. And why do you not like small-minded people?
1: I think that small-minded people are so focused on themselves and their own feelings that...
2: <laughs> that's not being small-minded. That's self-love.
0: You get yourself some. I think that was a shot at you, Kareem. I, it was a direct shot at me.
1: No, I just dislike small-minded people. They're so focused on themselves mm-hmm. that they don't really understand what's happening around them.
0: Mm-mm.
1: That's how I wouldn't say any name in particular.
2: Mm-hmm. You know what you're <laughs> trying to hang at. But listen, I love me so <laughs> me. I can't get enough of me. I'm going to tell me how much I love me as soon as we end the podcast. So, But Misa, real fast, I have to ask um, Hilda Braden a question because he's, he's a Philly guy. So what, what are your feelings on the Dark well, Rents? I remember going to the Dark Rents. I remember going to the the Philadelphia Hair Company a long, long time ago, oh, and they, they raised Avenue me. Like all, this, all this was here. All that, all this was filled out. Yes.
3: <laughs> yeah. You talking about the spot on Germantown Avenue?
2: Yes, sir. Yes.
3: Yeah. So what do I think about? What, the, the Dark Rents?
2: Yeah, Dark Rents.
3: I'm not a fan of it.
2: Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. You talking I, about
3: when they make the line and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah not right, right,
2: right now, yeah, right now it's it's a little bit more, a um, little bit more advanced than it was back, like in the '90s. Because when okay. it rained, you know, you have all that come down <laughs> in your head, so you got yeah. to make sure that it wasn't hot and it wasn't yeah. raining when you got your haircuts.
3: I thought about it one time for my for oh. my my beard my face. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't grow one, but now that we're being we're quarantined and everything, growing <laughs> something. You know that time. But 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 let me just say this, Kareem, it's uh-huh. the hip hop guy Jada Kiss has a new song out that talks mm-hmm. about all about me. Mm-hmm. So I just said what you said. That thought mm-hmm. I thought about Jada Kiss. Listen to that mm-hmm. song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we
0: definitely, we definitely yeah. the, end of the podcast It's a great show. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> Sponsored by Kareem.
0: <laughs> well, uh, Hilda Brandeis, thank you so much for taking the time out. This is definitely a, a powerful conversation, um, a much needed conversation in the educational arena. Um, hopefully we can get this out to many as many educators as possible. Uh, we would love to chop it up with you again sometime mm-hmm. in the future. Um, one more time, the name of your book, where they could get it.
3: Yep, unlocking potential, organizing the school inside a prison. Uh, Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, and OutskirtsPress.com, or my website, which is Hildebrand Pelzer 3, the number 3, all one word.com.
0: Awesome! Awesome! Everybody out there, to our audience, thanks for rocking with us. Stay safe out there. Practice social distancing. Wash your hands. Take care of the elderly. Reach out to the young people. All the stuff that we talked about, but um, also more importantly, it's time for some self grooming on your end. Um, again, I keep saying it. Um, do your self assessments. Start planning. Start putting things into action. Um, because I I mark my words. Think there's going to be a lot of opportunity out out there. When, this thing's, you know, the dust settles, and you just need to be ready to to move, uh, whether it's in education or not, Um, but just, you know, don't sit back and let this time go by idly. So, um, as always, we say here, stay empowered.